2: The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Welcome to the Pure Hoops podcast. I'm Eric Newman. As you know, my partner BJ Armstrong won three championship rings with the Chicago Bulls, the first of Chicago's two three-peats. On Thursday, BJ and I had the pleasure of reminiscing with one of his teammates on those championship teams, Will Purdue? The interview was so good, we're splitting it into two parts over this week and next. They talked about the credit due to Jerry Krause, their struggles with learning the triangle offense, and Michael Jordan's intensity in practice. Let's get right to it. Here's part one of BJ and I with Will Purdue. BJ, of course, top of mind, top of everybody's mind the last couple of weeks. And, of course, coming up again Sunday night, The Last Dance. You and I have a lot to talk about, but before you and I go off on our mission, we've got a special guest today, four-time NBA champion, former teammate of yours with the Chicago Bulls, the one and only Will Perdue. Will, thanks for jumping on with us today to talk The Last Dance.
1: Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you having me on. And listen, this is a great opportunity for me to thank BJ to help, for helping make me the player that I was. You remember when, I, when, I played, when I played, big men had a rule, three dribbles maximum. So in order to get the basketball, in order to score, we had to do two things. One, get an offensive rebound, or two, <laughs> highly depend on and develop a relationship with the guards to pass you the basketball.
2: So what, what was being leveraged for being to get you the ball?
1: Well, I think, I think my number was, I had hit 80% of my shots on passes from him. <laughs> so that's Silly. why he had some
2: assist numbers. Oh, yeah, it. that's Got That's it. my guy,
1: you know, but I will say, if you miss, if you miss the bunny that he passed to you, and then next next time down the floor, we're we're running the offense, he may give you the old one-two ball fake look into the post, and then just pass it on to the top of the key. Uh, I'm sure you got a combination of side
2: eye and look off immediately. Oh, uh, uh, Will,
0: come on, Will. It was- <laughs> Come on. I always took care of the big fellas. You know that, Will. You always took care of the big fellas. Yeah, that's because oh. you,
2: needed, a, that's because you <laughs> needed Will to set those down screens for you. Come on, man.
1: Yeah, this is um, true. This is but, true. But, you know,
2: j- jumping in here, you know, you guys obviously have a, a, a unique bond and, uh, you know, came to the Bulls in back-to-back years while they were uh, climbing the mountain. Uh, Will comes in in the 88 draft, 11th overall. BJ the following year in 89, the 18th overall. And uh, the Bulls at this point are in the early stages of their rivalry with the Detroit Pistons and trying to become that next team in the East to uh, to to take the torch and get to the mountaintop. And, BJ, we've talked about this a lot with our rivalries, whether it was Philly, Boston, Detroit, and Chicago being next in line. So, you know, Will, when you get to the Bulls, you know, what is that environment and vibe like knowing you know we're we're getting we're getting with Michael Scotty's developing, and um we're gonna try to put something special together here.
1: you know for me, when I first got there, it was a semblance of awe in the sense that, okay, now you're here, but as you talk about we we kind of hit up that first practice and you see how good Michael is you've always watched him on TV, but now to be in his presence, you're like, you know, watching on television, as, as good as he is, still doesn't do it justice. Um, you know, Scotty Pippen, like, uh, you know, you're like people are sleeping on this guy. Um, you know, Horace Grant, you know, it's, it's, he's better than what you had thought or heard. Um, so you knew that the, they, you had the pieces, but you, there's, Two things I I remember looking at was, one, you know, how does – at that time it was Doug Collins. How does Doug put these pieces together? And, two, how do I fit in? Because at the same time that I went there, they also traded Charles Oakley to the Knicks for Bill Cartwright. So, you know, back then, when you made a trade, that that guy was immediately inserted into the lineup. And by no way did I think I was better than Bill Cartwright because I had actually didn't know much about Bill Cartwright. You know, I had to rely on you know like scouts and information that I got from people. So I was looking forward to the challenge, you know, of getting ready. But it, that's the other thing is you realize, you know, ten fifteen minutes into that first practice of training camp, <laughs> this isn't college, man. This is this is totally different. And even at that point, when you come in. It, it, willing to accept the challenge you realize that I I have to adjust my expectations of myself but I also have to change how I'm thinking because of what's going to be required of me you know coming in because regardless of what you did in college that 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 means nothing when you step on the floor uh, for the team you're playing for that's everybody there is like hey I don't care what you did in college you need to prove what you can do here So it's almost like you have to take a step back before you take a step forward. Very few guys, you know, we all know about, you know, players, MJ being one. I remember, like you saw in the documentary, you know, Orlando Warwick is like, yeah, this guy's our best player right now. Very few guys have that immediate impact when you look at the league as a whole. But it's trying to find your place, trying to find who you are, what your identity is, how do you fit in. And for me, that was, that was difficult because, you know, I didn't necessarily get off with of such a great start, but from a team aspect, you saw the pieces. And I just remember also playing that first game against Detroit. You're like, all right, this is the team we're supposed to be to beat. But you saw that like, you know, technically I think we're better than them on an individual aspect. When you go piece by piece, but we got to figure out as a team, how we beat these guys. And that was, that was the difficult part. And it, You know, unfortunately, Doug couldn't do it, and it took Phil a little bit and uh, a couple different approaches to get it done.
0: Hey, Will, you know, you talked about Bill Cartwright, who, you know, I think we both love, admired, meant so much to our team, but he had a nickname, right? I'm going to let you share his nickname. And could you also, Will, talk about his leadership to our group? Because internally, you know, he had a big part behind the scenes of how we developed and shaped us. But could you expand on that just a little bit?
1: All right. Well, first of all, kid, what's the nickname? Because we always used to call him Billy C. I I called him Elbows because the dude knocked me out of practice literally every day.
0: Well, the teacher. Why was he oh, called? Oh, the teacher. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, first of all, I, I, the reason why BJ asked that question is because I think I, if I remember correctly, you gave him that name. <laughs> so so BJ just wants to get the credit, but it actually was a, a great nickname. Nice, nice because setup, BJ. Nice setup. I can attest to that because I used to go to lunch a lot with Bill. So where we used to practice at the Multiplex, there was a deli attached in that strip mall. Right and after practice billy used to because listen it's at the end of the day when we played kid there was no buffets there was no food provided we didn't have a practice facility we were at a a health club with a gym attached to the end and i don't think people remember this the floor wasn't even regulation length right it was actually like what five or six feet shorter so it was just but that's where we were practicing You know, one of the things my agent told me was, is is take Bill Cartwright. This guy, he understands the game. And try to pick his brain. Tell him as much, you know, try to get as much out of him as possible about how to play the game and tricks of the trade. And especially, you know, getting scouting reports on the guys you play. So the teacher was was a perfect name for him. We used to go to uh, lunch at this deli a lot. One, because he was a veteran. He always made me pay. But two... (laughs) He would always, you know, answer my questions and he would help me out to a certain extent. The kid, I remember specifically one one uh, time we were having lunch and I was just like every once in a while I would ask him a question. He wouldn't answer and he would just kind of brush it over and move on. And one day I was like, how come you don't answer all my questions? I'll do my best Bill Cartwright impersonation. He was like, question. You're trying to take my job, so I'm not going to tell you everything. Some things you're going to have to figure <laughs> out on your own. So that's when I realized that, hey, this isn't personal, but we're both fighting for the same thing. And there, to answer the second part of your question, kid, there was – and listen, he was like this to everybody. You know, he was always – I used to joke because I think he used to die that little goatee. He, he would die like a gray spot in the middle. Right. You know? So he always looked older than he was, and because of the beating he had taken, and he had suffered some injuries earlier in his career, he, he definitely looked a lot older than he really was. And you know, when you watched him walk and run, you it just you kind of cringed a little bit at times. Yet he truly understood how to play the game. And he was pivotal for pivotal for our team because it was almost like he was a quiet leader. Like he would – like if you made a mistake, he would kind of give you that look where he would cock his head to the side like, you know, you're an idiot. (laughs) You know? But it was one of those things. He didn't necessarily say a lot. But when he did, it was like profound what he said. And I remember one of the things that he used to always hammer on to me and guys on the team was opportunity. You know, he always talked about opportunity's not always going to be knocking. Opportunity is there for us. We need to take advantage of this opportunity because that was the first time I had heard somebody talk about opportunity being a window. You know, you you guys don't understand. You're young. You guys think that uh, that opportunity is always going to be there. It's not. You guys have to take advantage of this opportunity. We're wasting this opportunity know, the inability to to beat the pistons. But it was also I think Scotty saw that, Michael saw that, Horace saw that. And it took a while, but I think just by Bill constantly sending that message, constantly being the ultimate professional that he was, you know, I i think that also and I, I know it changed my outlook, but it changed a lot of outlooks, you know, and I And Eric, I will say this. One thing I could say about BJ coming in as a young guy was he was mature beyond his age. And I don't know if that was, you know, being in Iowa, I don't know if it was his parents. Um, you know, I found myself learning things from him. But I think a lot of that was quietly BJ, uh, he was almost like an educator himself. You know, it was kind of interesting. He's, you know, uh, here's a young guy coming in straight from college, but yet he had the mentality and the soul of an old, older, more mature, experienced veteran player. And he was literally a perfect fit for what we needed and what we were looking for. And it's kind of interesting, BJ, you bring up and ask the question about Billy C., because you were like a clone of him almost as far as, but for, but at a different position, but how you approached and looked at the game.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bill was, he was so unique. And, th- and thanks, Will. I mean, I, those are very kind words and, and I really appreciate it. But Bill was, he has such a impact on the pulse of the team. And I think you said it, you were hit dead on when he didn't say much, but when he did say something, it was almost like, it was like he had everyone's attention right and um and you know the, as far as the teacher i mean i i think it was craig hodges who really gave him that name and <laughs> i remember the first time i drove to the basket <laughs> i remember in practice and bill was like you know what craig told me this he was like you're going to learn why we call him the teacher <laughs> and bill You know, Bill took it personal when you, when us little guys would drive to the basket, you know, and he was, he was such a, he was like a rim protector, but he wasn't like a shot blocker. But he played with such a physical presence down there in the post wheel, and you played against him every single day. Thank God I didn't have to do that. But I would imagine the physicality in which he brought to the game (laughs) and the drills you guys would do and those. I always remember when we would have those, remember Will, when we would have the bigs down here and the littles down here? And yeah. I, can only oh, imagine yeah. what, I can only imagine the pounding that you guys were getting from Bill <laughs> when
1: you were doing your drills. Uh, well, you know, the funny thing was he shot his shot. Everybody talks about how unique and ugly his jump shot was, but he shot it with the purpose of protecting the basketball with his elbows. <laughs> you know, the way he would wind up. It was almost like, you know, hey, if you want to block my shot, go right ahead, but you're going to pay the price, you know, because of the way that he shot the basketball. But I remember one of the first times we were doing that kid and we were on each end of the floor. And I think it was it was more Johnny Bach than anybody else. You know, Johnny Bach pulled me aside and said, hey, you need to be very careful with this guy. Not, <laughs> not in a, Not in a negative way, but he was like warning me that, Bill plays a certain way, and as you talked about, he plays with a physical presence. I specifically remember Johnny saying, do not take it personally. He's not trying to hurt you, but at some point he, will, he is going to hit you, and you're going to be like, what the hell? Yeah, and I remember was... one drill, he reverse pivot. He hit me so hard in the side of the head that my <laughs> ear turned black and blue. Never, never heard of that happening or seen that until it happened to me. And This was Bill Cartwright's humor. Like we're, we're shooting free throws. Like a lot of times, okay. At the end of practice, get to the basket, shoot two free throws, you know. And one time he came up to me and he goes, Hey, let me see your elbows. And he'd like rub his hand across my elbows, you know, like he was putting lotion on or something like, what are you doing? he goes here take my take he took my hand and put it on his elbows. it was like a jagged cliff edge <laughs> and he goes you'll see he goes give it a couple of years sharpening goes, sharpening the
2: tools yeah he said if
1: you use your elbows right they'll feel like mine in a couple of years and i'm like what that? And i remember we used to make fun of bill because after every game he had his ankles in two buckets of ice, he had ice on his knees, he had ice on his elbow. I mean, he literally was, you know, and he was the only player, if I remember correctly, that initially had, a, had his own ice machine at his house. Right, right. he constantly said he was basically icing 24-7 in order to play. And we used to give him a hard time, and he's like, give it time. Yeah. laugh yeah. uh, all you want now but i'll call you in a couple of years and you'll be like you know you were right so <laughs> you know it's kind of like you're right kid it's kind of like the the teacher i mean he was it, it's kind of interesting as we you know and that's the other thing that i've been telling people about this documentary because you know doing podcasts and interviews it's amazing some of the things that you forgot that that are brought back to the surface that just that as you see here just kinda of make you laugh, that uh, you know, it was all part of the whole experience.
2: Yeah, and and Will, that's a, that's a perfect segue to my next question. And, you know, somewhat jokingly, I mean, Bill was on some pretty bad Knicks teams in New York, so uh him getting into a, a different situation and uh taking it out on you young guys just, was probably uh Part of that too. But uh, all, all joking aside, things that are forgotten about that 89 season, you know, you guys are very competitive. And this is uh, to remind people, this is right before BJ was drafted. You guys are very competitive, but you're the sixth seed in the playoffs and you're facing a, a, a rising Cleveland Cavaliers team in the first round, who's a three seed. And correct me if I'm wrong, but most people were writing you guys off. And game five in Cleveland, of course, sets up a, a momentous moment, which is the first Michael Jordan shot. But you're then propelled into the second round of the playoffs. And who are you facing, of course, the New York Knicks. And Bill, I'm sure, had some uh, some insight as to how to handle them in in the second round. What, what was it like getting um, through Cleveland with that moment and then – you know navigating the Knicks and all of a sudden you guys have broken through to the conference finals in 1989 where of course the pistons were waiting
1: right well first of all you know getting to game 5 was um you know a task in itself cuz you're right you know we were just a 6 seed um you know we at that at that point we weren't running the triangle yet Doug Collins is the coach um you know, it, the one thing I will say about that team was is the, the immaturity of that team, you know, showed – it showed itself. And that was part of the learning process because of the fact that, you know, okay, we had MJ, we had PAX veteran players, we had, um, mm-hmm. you know, Bill Cartwright. But yet we were leaning heavily on Scottie Pippen and, you know, and Horace Grant and then, you know, some other guys that is just kind of – You know, looking at the team itself as far as the starting group, you know, and you had the ups and downs of Scotty, you had the ups and downs of Horace, you know, I didn't really play a lot, but it wasn't like we were facing dire adversity, but, you know, it it was the constant clashing of egos, things of that nature of guys coming into the league, guys coming into their own, and you were right, we weren't supposed to beat them, and then Michael hits that shot. And it just kind of propels us forward. But it was also one of those things where you're like, considering everything that Bill Cartwright has been through, the fact that he had to play for Hubie Brown, and Bill used to tell me some stories about Hubie. Just Hubie's whole thing was, you know, rookies have to earn their stripes. Rookies don't necessarily play a lot. You got to sit on the bench, you got to watch, you got to figure out how to play the game, you know and then the injuries that he dealt with. We felt like this was the perfect setup. And again, because like BJ confirmed and I mentioned, you know, he didn't talk a lot. You know, he smiled a lot. He would laugh. He would joke. But he wasn't a very emotional guy, nor was he a very vocal guy. But you knew in deep inside that this was now his opportunity to kind of – and you don't want to say get back at a team. This was an organization that drafted him. He had considerable pride. He loved New York. But it's just like, all right, here's my opportunity. We've made the trade. Here's my chance now to show my importance. I know I've unfortunately been through a lot in New York and there's a lot of the things I couldn't control, but this is something that I can help control and I can help and that's where that leadership aspect of Billy's then really kind of took over.
2: Yeah, and and I don't know if people realize Bill Cartwright was a 20-point-per-game scorer early in his career with the Knicks. And after the 84 season, where they took the Celtics to seven in the second round uh, behind an unbelievable run uh, by Bernard King, the entire next season, 84-85, he's out with an injured foot, and then they draft Patrick Ewing. So I'm sure Bill was in a, a very... Um, a just vulnerable position with what was going to be next in his career. And, uh, you know, he gets healthy. And then, as you said earlier, he gets traded for Charles Oakley um, uh, to the bulls for the 88, 88, 89 season. And I just want to give people an idea. Michael Jordan in the 88, 89 average 32 and a half points, eight rebounds, eight assists and nearly three steals per game shooting almost 54% from the floor. Um, This is a, a season that I think gets overlooked in terms of being pivotal in the development of what became the first part of the dynasty. So, Will, can you paint a picture what Chicago stadium was like for those NBA playoffs where the fans started to taste what was coming and if you want to pick it up first with the shot in Cleveland which of course is a, an unbelievable moment and then setting up the Knicks series
1: well i remember the shot as it was at the other end of the floor so we were all trying to get you know we obviously knew what the play was coming out of the timeout so we were all kind of crouched around you know everybody i think half the half our team was out on the floor so we could actually see what was going on as everybody started to stand up on the bench and you know they run that play, and then I think sometimes you know people talk about the shot, but that was a double pump jump shot that Elo actually provided really good defense for, and it was just an incredible. I mean, listen, you got to you got to have you have to say it. It's somewhat luck that he hit it, but that's kind of when you know it it all started. I think what people also forget is. You know, before Michael got hurt, and that's the next question, what What happens with this organization if Michael doesn't get hurt, it doesn't miss, I think it was, what, 67 games his second year in the yep. league? Because you talk about the old stadium, you know, they went from horrible attendance. I have plenty of friends uh, that I've made over the years that had season tickets, most notably up in the second balcony. They said they would start the first quarter sitting in their seats and by the middle of the second quarter, they're down in the, uh, in the uh, lower bowl, second or third row, mid court, because nobody went to the games. And then, and then, as you know, Michael came in that first season, and as everybody saw in the documentary, he felt like he earned his stripes. You know, in that third game, by the the latter half of the season, they started selling out. People were excited. But on a whole, the team still wasn't really that good, and it just every then he gets hurt, and then they kind of get set back. Um, but you kind of you know wonder what would happen if if he didn't get hurt. But that first of all, the stadium was a dump. You know, it, it <laughs> I was, loved it, though, Will. I
0: loved the stadium. I loved that place.
1: Oh, I loved it, but it was a dump. Um, I remember my first game the way you would go into the stadium, at least I would, I would walk across the floor. And I remember stopping and being like, it's freaking freezing in here. What is going on? And they'd be like, Oh, there's a, there's a ice below the floor. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They like, they just put plywood on top of the ice and then they put a little carpet down and then they put the floor on top of the the plywood. <laughs> and I remembered when, you know, and like I said, I didn't play a lot my rookie year. I mean, I literally my feet would be frozen by the end of the game because all I did was just sit there and watch, you know, because the seats were off the floor the way the seats were – they sat to put the seats up. And so sometimes your feet were sitting – right your feet were right on that plywood, which is just right on top of the ice. But I also remember you'd walk across the floor, and then you'd have to go down these steps to get to the locker room. Right. There would always be these cats. And I'd be like, hey, you guys, what's up with these cats? And they'd be like, oh, don't touch the cats. They kill the mice. I'd be like, what? would be like, yeah, man, there's a lot of mice in this building. These cats keep the mice under control. And I was like, uh, okay, whatever. But then you come down the steps and you take a left. And then that's the other thing. You're like, "Yo, man, I'm in the NBA. And you walk into this locker room that I swear to you was smaller than any locker room I had ever been in. In my high school or college career, I was like, "What the hell is this?" You know, but it was just. But then, all your questions were answered when you would gather at the bottom of the steps. You know, have our little huddle, and then the the minute, and then the first preseason game. The minute you'd run up those steps, and this the energy, the explosion, the the atmosphere. You were just. It, again, talked about how it was a dump and small the locker room was. It was like it was unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life as far as you know, just the fans and their and their desire for a winner. You know about well, what was developing.
0: Well, will I tell you what, the the huddle was actually the Cliff Livingston the Good News huddle, right? He was the only yep. one that was talking in the huddle, and. But I just want to ask you this, Will, because you when you came in 88, right? That was your first year, right? 88? 88,
1: 88, 89.
0: 89 88, 88, 89. You actually had an opportunity to see the transition. The transition of playing when, you know, the way the system that you guys played with under Doug Collins. And then you we went to Phil Jackson and my first year was Phil Jackson's first year. So, Will, can you just briefly talk about the transition because it was a it was a new system that was put in place and you kind of saw both and my big question to you is did you think that the transition of the style of play was the correct style to actually win because you know you guys were having some success there obviously you didn't beat the pistons and back then but did you did you think that that was the right move at that at that time
1: well i you know ours our the way Doug ran it was like most offenses you know you had calls one up, one down, you know five across you know a a more i guess you could say because of when you compare it to the triangle, you could say the offense that we ran prior to that under Doug was more predictable right you know um. And it also relied on a lot of, you know, MJ freelancing, a lot of screen roll with MJ. But, you know, when Phil came back that next year and became the head coach and we talked about, okay, we're going to run this offense. And let's, you know, DJ, you understand this. And everybody, let's make sure everybody understands. This wasn't Phil's offense. This was Tex winners' offense. Yep. And, you know, basically Tex would run practice for the first – forty five minutes to an hour talking about, okay, we're gonna run the we're gonna run the triangle, we're gonna run the triple post, and this is how you do it. I remember, you know, it it had not only got a lot of pushback from Michael, but it was it's I don't want to say it's difficult, but I think it's the best way to say it is it's intricate because of how the offense works. The offense works by it's dictated by what the defense does. And early on, we struggled running the offense because for the offense to really work, to really be smooth, to really hum, all five guys on the floor have to see the same thing from the defense. And Eric, as BJ knows, that that didn't happen a lot early on because of guys trying to figure things out. As you know, when you run an offense – if you're thinking about what you're trying to do, you're already a step behind. And that was the other thing because the, the offense was so predicated on timing. Yeah. Okay, what is the defense doing, and then the timing of how we run the offense is predicated on what the defense is trying to stop or contain or control. And if the timing's off, the defense, the offense fails. The offense fall, you know, falls apart. So we used to have uh, the bench was required that when the shot clock hit five we had to start yelling red red that means that the shot clocks running down guys stop running the offense just get the ball in michael's hand the closest <laughs> big runs over and we, we run a screen roll that that was our bailout
0: yeah well i found i so, found out many years later will that uh you know we were running the offense just to get the ball to michael for that red situation. I found out many years ago, so I thought I'd just let you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't doubt it because that's, that was the whole thing. I know there was a lot of pushback from Michael, but at times you kind of felt like you were just going through the motions because you were just like, what exactly? Cause that was the hard part. Even though Tex would explain it, you were like, okay, what exactly are we trying to accomplish right. within this offense? And, you know, I'll ask you, BJ, I didn't feel like that the offense really became efficient and effective for like a year and a half, almost two years, because it's just, that's how intricate it was. So, you know, maybe you'd be like, well, hold on a second. You said it's not that difficult. Once you, once we figured it out, it was like second nature. You know, you didn't, you didn't even have to think about it. It, it. You didn't like when you run one down, you're like, okay, what do I do in one down? Once I thought the the defense or the offense became efficient, you just ran down the floor. And when the pass went to a certain spot, you knew exactly what you were supposed to do and how you were supposed to do it. It became second nature.
2: That was going to be my next question for both of you. Do you remember whether it was the practice, the moment, the game, the road trip, whatever it was, where that thing just started to click and hum and you looked at each other and you knew, all right, we're getting this and it's working let's let's keep pushing and getting better. was Was there a, a pivotal moment there?
0: Um, well well I'll answer this first for uh, before will. Um, my first year there, my my rookie season, will's second season, I think we all struggled, right? I think everyone struggled with because it was a new system, and I don't know if Will recalls this, but will remember the automatics, right? Like when to run and the automatics were always the counters to the offense, right? Well and I think everyone struggled to understand. You know, it's not enough time here to explain it, but the automatics took precedent over the offense, right, Will? And I was like, What is an automatic? (laughs) Right? We had these plays that were dictated by the defense, and that was kind of an unusual way to play. But where it clicked for me was well, remember in practice where we would run this drill, it was like three or four teams, right? And, and the, the one team would start in the, the middle of the court and then there would be like three, there would be two guys waiting to defend. And then remember, yeah. what well, you had to cut, you had to touch the middle of the circle and you would play defense from behind. Yeah. And remember that? It was like, it was a total chaos. I mean, I didn't know who was who, what was what, but everyone had to figure out what was going on. And that's when I realized, Will, that the triangle offense was actually a defensive scheme to allow us to play in a chaotic situation. And if you could not, if you could ever play the game on the defensive end, we never had to run the triangle offense. That's what I learned from that drill. And the, the, the best part of the games for me, playing with those guys, with Phil Jackson, and the coaching staff would make a substitution, right? And the substitution would always be whichever one had it going in the first quarter, they were going to come out. So if Michael had it going, he stayed in or, or, or Scotty and the second unit, we would always press and the games to me always resemble that practice. (laughs) And remember Johnny Bach gave us the name, the Doberman game. And we would press and we would always, cause you didn't press with Bill Cartwright, but when Will and you and, and Scott Williams and, Stacey King and myself, and we would come in and it would just be so chaotic. And only play we would run if there was a play was 51 or 52, which was just a screen roll. And then we would play out of it and we would just press. So to me, that's when it clicked to me is that let's just run automatics all the time. <laughs> Cause we were actually two different teams and we were really, our bench I thought was like we were providing energy because Michael and Scotty both wanted to play with us a lot of the times because we would play, it wasn't freelance, but we played at a different pace than the first team because the first team with Paxson and and Bill, they would, you know, we ran more sets and we ran more things. We were much more, I think we were probably a better half-court team with that group, but the full-court play of all of us of our youth and our age i thought was one of the propelling things that allowed me
1: at least as a guard to understand the offense yeah and you know the interesting thing that drill you were talking about it was chaotic because you know so uh, people that are listening can understand the person it was kind of like a three on two two on one but it became more of a three on three situation because the person that came from half court was a defender and as the ball passed you you were allowed to then run to half court, touch the circle, and then you were like the trail defender. You were running in to try to help the two guys that were back, trying to defend the three guys coming down the floor. And that's what the chaotic situation was. And then obviously you went the other direction, you know, two on one. But I agree with you, kid, in the sense that it, when that second unit came in, because the first unit... You know, the one thing that Phil talked about was the ball has to go into the post. The ball has to go into the post. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they had to come down, and that was part of the the frustration with Michael was they would have to come down and get the ball into Bill and run all the cuts off of Bill in the post. The baseline guy cuts baseline. The wing cuts, you know, does that angle cut, sets the the screen for the opposite big down on the block. So they were – I don't want to say they were somewhat predictable, but it it was a much slower-paced game. Whereas, as you talk about, you know, you would look out there with, say, by the four-minute mark, the three-and-a-half-minute mark of the first quarter, it would be four guys coming off the bench and either Michael or Scotty. And then that's when, as you talked about, we would press, we would look to push the ball, we would look to get deflections, we would look to get turnovers. You know, and one of the things that with our group that Phil, I thought, helped us out tremendously was is that I, as the five guy, or whoever the five guy was, you had a designated man taking the ball out of bounds. So everybody else with – the ball went through the net. Everybody else sprinted to the other end of the floor. And then, in this case, B.J. and Michael or Scotty would then run to uh, free-throw line extended on each side so that if one side was covered, then you sprint underneath the basket and can dump it out to the other side. Everybody has a designated area, but Phil focused on the designated man taking the ball out of bounds was the five. So he always came up as the trailer. And the second thing was, we focused on trying to get you and Michael or you and Scotty the ball moving north and south, not coming back to the basketball, but you almost doing like a loop so that as you caught the ball, you were on the move heading to the other end of the floor. And then as we got down there, you know, guys had certain cuts. And then then me as a trailer or Scott Williams or Stacey, whoever, like if I was the first guy down, whatever. You would either advance the ball from one side of the floor to the other because that was the important one of the important aspects of the offense to try to get the defense to move. Or you just run straight into the screen roll. And allow that guy to come off the screen roll with the movement on the other side of the ball. And it was almost like, B.J.'s exactly right. Initially, it was almost like two different offenses, depending on the personnel that was on the floor. And then to start off the second quarter, whoever was still in the game with the second unit, then came off the floor and the the guy that went out, meaning Michael or Scotty, then came in and started the second quarter with that second unit. And then we would go three or four minutes with that group. And the one thing that Phil always pounded into us was, if you're the second unit, you have two jobs. One, if you have the lead, you maintain and extend the lead. And two, if the team is in a deficit, you try to cut it, cut that deficit in half by the time the starters come in. That's right.
2: So, Will, with the the varying styles, and it sounds like you, you know pace was really different between first team and second team, and then with what you just shared with with Phil's rules, uh, what did that make for the intensity of practice, the scrimmages, the battles that went on? Um, What was some of that like, and and how did that make you guys all uh, a better team? And
1: and that's the other thing I realized is how intense practices were. You know, because of i mean Michael's competitive nature had a lot to do with it but at the same time you know kind of going back to the to the Bill Cartwright story because guys are fighting for playing time you know you're talking about now everybody on that floor is in the NBA and everybody's fighting cuz they feel like they deserve to play more and they want to play more so these practices were heated practices were very competitive, and that's the other thing. We we played, we practiced every day. Remember Phil's rule was if we don't play on Sundays, we get Sundays off. If we, you know, because they didn't have all the the rules they have now in the collective bargaining agreement. But unfortunately, we played a lot on Sundays because of Michael and and everybody wanted to have Michael on television. So we usually played a lot on Sundays at 12 o'clock which was in one sense a luxury because if you're at home, you always were like, oh, this is awesome. A 12 o'clock game will be done by about 2.30. We'll have an opportunity to go out, have a nice dinner, relax, get home at a decent hour. you know. But then we always had practice again on Monday because it was like the two days it seems like that everybody played in the league was on Tuesdays and Fridays and Saturdays. But we didn't have the luxury of having Monday off. Mm-hmm. But it did matter. Practices were just as competitive. Guys didn't sit out. You know, we talked, the one guy that maybe sat out periodically was quite possibly Bill Cartwright, but yet he was still there. He was engaged. He would work out. He'd go through the early part of the drills, and then occasionally when we scrimmaged, he would he would then, Phil would take him out. And even then, you know, Phil would get the Bill Cartwright look because Bill didn't necessarily think it was necessary for him to sit out practice, but it went, it went back and forth, and I had B.J. Uh, on a podcast uh, with me last week, and we kind of reminisced about how enjoyable it was that it didn't happen often, <laughs> but the second unit would occasionally beat the first unit in practice, and M.J. would be hot. <laughs> Even to the point where MJ couldn't even accept the fact that we beat him, he wouldn't. Ex- he wouldn't acknowledge that we beat him. All he would say was the coaches cheated him. He no call. Johnny Fox didn't blow a damn whistle. You guys cheated me. Yeah, well, that those are those are
0: those are some funny.
1: <laughs> those were funny.
0: So, but so that's guys- the other
1: thing I think BJ will agree, Eric is, is that it's almost like the games were you look forward to the games because the games, you knew how competitive they were going to be, but you also knew the other team didn't know how hard they were going to have to play just to beat us. I don't want to say the games were easier, but it was a, we didn't have to go against our teammate, but B, it wasn't going to be as tough as what we did the last three days in practice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no. And I can imagine, um, what that realization was like as it was happening and, and that confirming how hard you guys were working and, and pushing each other. And just speaking of pushing, you know, in 89, you go up 2 one on Detroit in the conference finals and, and they come back and win three straight and close you out. And, you know, going through that next season, um, climbing the mountain and of course, you know, BJ's on the team by then, you know, how much of a motivating factor was Detroit in how hard you guys worked and what you were building day to day?
1: Well, I don't even think it was, I mean, it was Detroit, but I think it was the realization of how much better we needed to be on on it in the league. Not even thinking about Boston or Atlanta or Milwaukee uh, or, or uh, you know, back then they were the Bullets, you know, no disrespect to them, but it was just like we're at a point now where, you know, we need to put ourselves in a position to have the best record possible to have home court. We need to win the games that we're supposed to win. We can't afford to lose games that we're not supposed to lose. We need to put ourselves in a position, you know, to where we to when We get into that situation where when we have a game seven it's necessary. We have it at home, but it was also knowing that as good as they were, you know, there were other things that we needed to work on. You know, hey, yeah, we're trying to beat the Detroit Pistons, but there were other aspects of our game that we needed to work on as well. But it's also you know continue to work on making the the offense better, continue working with Johnny Bach on the defensive aspect. But the interesting thing is what we had to do also as far as the mental aspect of how do we go about actually playing the Detroit Pistons and the New York Knicks. And, you know, cause again, when I talked about when you started looking at our teams on paper, you know, we in this, we had the better athletes, you know, both teams had experience, both teams had skill sets, both teams had veteran players, but I thought that we had the better athletes, but how do we take the better athletes and then turn around and beat the Detroit pistons and that's something that we had to learn at the same time
2: so one of the uh one of the big topics coming out of the uh first two episodes of the last dance is uh of course mr jerry Krause and him being portrayed in a uh i think it's accurate to say being portrayed in a in a villainous role um being that you know he was partly responsible for, for breaking up the championship bulls at the end but you know he drafted both of you guys so you know would love a little back and forth between you guys here on uh you know your relationship with him uh at the time you were in chicago and you know what he was like uh 1st hand accounts
1: from you guys well kid, kid what was the uh what was the assistant gm's name back then it was billy what was billy's last name
0: um, that might have been before I got there. Well, when when I came, it was Jimmy Stack, Clarence Gaines were there with Jerry. So Right. Um, yeah, so that so might have been year, before I got there.
1: Yeah, so my year there was a guy by the name of Billy, and he might have actually taken another job which then opened things up for right. uh Stack.
0: Okay, yeah. That was before uh, I got there. That's who was there when I came.
1: Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I dealt with Eric was, you know, I had I had uh, one of my the assistants who kind of became, you know, my coach at Vanderbilt was a gentleman by the name of Ed Martin. And Ed Martin knew all the coaches in the NBA. He knew most of the assistants. He knew the general managers. Um, he, he had been uh, Chuck Robinson's coach at uh, Tennessee State back in the day, and then he eventually came over to Vanderbilt as an assistant. But he had told me about Jerry Krause as he's like, listen, this guy's a little different, all right? But he know he knows basketball, but he's just – he's different. And, you know, Jerry wanted everything to be secretive. You know, don't tell anybody you're coming to work out for us. Don't let anybody know, you know, you're going to be here. Other teams are going to want to know who you're working out for. I don't care what you tell them about, you know, the other teams, but just do not tell them that you've worked out for – the Chicago Bulls. And if they say you have, just deny it. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, just just deny it. Don't let them know. Just say, no, I, I haven't worked out for them. So my first trip into Chicago to come work out for the Bulls to do my in, my individual workout, uh, you know, you, first of all, you're like, okay, how am I supposed to do this? Because they're flying me commercial into Chicago and picking me up at O'Hare. It's not like I can hide, you know. Um, So Billy picks me up. And back then, you know, you had the car phones that are in the car. You know, they're mounted in the car. You can't take them out. And then they Billy liked to give Jerry a hard time, and he goes, watch this. He dials them, and Jerry picks up the phone, and he goes, Agent Orn, it's Agent Blue. I picked up the package. And he goes, cut the shit. You know? And then um, they take me straight to the hotel. They, I'm, they check me into the Hyatt Deerfield under an alias. I'm not even allowed to – you check in under my, my real name.
2: What's the alias?
1: I can't even remember because you'll, you'll also know why I can't remember because something else happens here at this story. And then they drop me off at like one o'clock and they're like, all right, we'll be back in a couple hours. We're going to come pick you up and then we're going to go to lunch with, with uh, Doug. And I'm like, okay. So about three, three hours later, I get a phone call hey uh we'll be downstairs in five minutes, meet us outside and Jerry comes, Doug comes, and we go to one of those one of the hackney restaurants that's closed at the moment because they're closed in between lunch and dinner, and we have a private uh late lunch with the restaurant closed, so nobody'll see us and then they drop me off at the uh back at the high and say hey we'll be we'll be back about nine thirty to get you and I'm like nine thirty he goes, yeah. We got to wait for the multiplex to close before we bring you in for your workout because we don't want anybody there. So that's how secretive it was. So eventually um, they pick me up uh, at like nine thirty at night.
2: Uh, unbelievable, they couldn't get they couldn't get a, a, a private gym for the workout. They got to wait. But <laughs> till They wanted they to use their facility. Before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they guess, bring me in.
1: They take me in the back door. We work out. Um, my workout doesn't end till like midnight. Jerry takes me to one of his little corner restaurants. You know, I'm just dripping in sweat. We sit in some booth. We we eat. Uh, he takes me back to the hotel, drops me off, says, all right, your ride is picking you up in the morning at 6 a.m. I had like a 7.30 flight or something. Um, it's like AAA cab or whatever. The guy will come in and ask for you. Just get in the car and go to the airport. You don't have to pay him. You don't have to do anything. I'm like, all right, so, you know. By the time I get back to the hotel, it's like one o'clock. I get 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 I gotta get up at 5:30 to get, you know catch this cab. I'm sitting in the lobby of the of the Hyatt, and there's this dude sitting there going, "Hey, I got a ride for you know I can't even remember my name." He kept saying, and I was like, "I wish this guy would just shut the hell up." Obviously, whoever he's looking for is not here. <laughs> then all of a sudden, I remember him. At, oh yeah, that's my alias. That's me. <laughs> and I literally got up, jumped in the cab. The guy took me to the airport. And then to to finish out the story, the very next workout I have is for, because now the, you know, at that point, you don't know where the Bulls, they don't have, their pick is like in the 20s, I think, or 16 or 17 or whatever. And then my next, my very next workout is with uh, the Bullets, who had the 12th pick. And back then it was Danny Ferry's dad was the general manager. And, You know, I fly into uh, Washington. I have my meeting with him. And the first thing he says to me, he goes, listen, I know you've worked out for the Bulls. You can tell me. It's okay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I haven't worked out for the Bulls. I I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, everybody knows you've worked out for the Bulls. and Everybody knows Jerry Krause told you. Don't tell anybody. But we all know. But he was just very secretive about what he wanted to do, how he wanted to handle things. And to me, that was humorous. But I thought at the end of the day, I thought he knew about basketball. It was just as you've talked about, Eric, and I'll let B.J. be a little more detailed. I thought, unfortunately for Jerry, and God bless his soul, he's passed away, he was really made out to be the villain in that those first two uh, episodes. And I'm curious if they do anything in the next eight to try to correct that or kind of balance out where some of this blame lies. Because I think there's too many f- people that feel it's all his fault
0: you know just the the follow up quickly what, what will said is you know i was probably I, I don't know out of out of everyone right um not only to get drafted there by jerry cross but i also worked with jerry for 5 years as assistant general manager yep. so the one thing i'll i'll say about jerry is is the following um it's well documented You know, Jerry was, as the story Will just shared with us, Jerry was very, very, I don't know if I don't want to say secretive, but he wanted things to stay in-house, right? He was very protective of information and he wanted to keep things, you know, amongst, you know, his people or people that he felt comfortable with or he trusted, right? And it was a very small circle of people. And, At that time, you know, there was the emergence of like talk radio. There was the emergence of talk shows that were beginning to sprout up on platforms like ESPN. And as the game became more and more popular, you know, the the quest for information became it became that much greater, right? We went from having maybe two guys to Chicago sometimes and the Chicago Tribune following us to suddenly there was all these other different, you know, uh, papers and, 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 and media people that were following the team. So it became that much more difficult to hold on to information. No one can deny this about Jerry, right? With the exception of Michael, Jerry was under Jerry's watch Every other player and coach, you know, Jerry had input on. We all were there on Jerry's watch, right? Jerry drafted Will. He drafted myself. He drafted Scottie Pippen. He drafted Horace Grant. He traded Charles Oakley to get Bill Cartwright. He hired Phil Jackson, Tex Winners, everybody. And say what you want, right? And we all have our, you know, I just call them, underdeveloped areas right jerry was not a media person he was not going to come out jerry was not going to come out and small talk with will or myself but we didn't need jerry's small talk with us we knew what we had to do and we were professional enough to understand but jerry did that not only once and had a three-peat he redid the same thing right he put another group of 10 guys because Scotty and Michael were the only other were the only two remaining players and did it again. So, in the end, you know, it's all about performance and I think any player who plays in that league or plays professional sports or anything, it's all about the end result. And no one can deny that. And say what you want to say, who's the villain, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, in the end no one can deny that those teams, right? Starting in 1990 or 91, whenever the first championship was, that organization had a run of six championships in an eight or nine-year window period. And arguably, because Will and I were there together, we felt just as confident. If maybe Michael would have came back, that we probably would have had a chance, right? <laughs> so, oh yeah, that was that was that's the that's the truth of the matter, and. Will was an incredible professional basketball player. And Will understands this, and all of us understood this. Whatever was going on outside of those lines. And that was one of the most, that was one of the proudest things I can say about playing on those teams. No matter what Will had going on outside of those lines, whatever BJ had going on, whatever Michael had going on, Scotty, whatever, when that game started, I've been knowing Will for 25 plus years now. I, could, I knew that Will Purdue was going to show up and give me his maximum effort when we stepped in between those lines. And that's the ultimate compliment that you can give someone to know that I can count on him to give the maximum effort that was necessary. And Will knew that whatever was going on, and we had a lot going on, Will. <laughs> we had a lot of oh, things yeah. going on. We had a lot. But when that game started, for whatever reason, and I don't know what it was. And Will we were there. Will it would always be quiet in the locker room. MJ was doing his thing. But when that game started, Will knew that those twelve guys were going to show up and we were going to play. And we knew that we had one focus. And that's what I can say about Jerry. I I I, I don't, you know, listen. I saw it. It is what it is. I worked with him and It wasn't personal. It was it was business, and the results speak for themselves. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. Go uh, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to add two things to what BJ said. You know, just take the Jerry Krause uh, issue one step farther. You know, as BJ said, we all have our weaknesses, and the one thing about Jerry is he just likes to keep things in house, but he also as BJ said, as we became more popular, as the game became more popular, as the new TV contract came aboard, um, you know, talk radio, people needed content, people needed information. Jerry despised. I mean, there's one thing to say, Hey, I just, I don't like the media, but he despised the media. He thought the media was the devil. (laughs) And he, he unlike Phil who knew how to use the media to his advantage to control the narrative, Jerry didn't know how to do that jerry was was not a people person, but i think b j will could say the same thing i we always you know as interesting as he was as odd as he was at the end of the day it was all about one thing winning a championship he was he was you know however you want to put it a weird dude or whatever, but you always felt that jerry had or you knew that Jerry had the team's best interest at heart at all times, to put us in a position to compete and to give us a realistic chance to win a championship.
2: So there you have part one of our interview with Will Perdue. Not surprising that two guys whose careers started with Jerry Krause drafting them would provide a perspective that balances the villain narrative he's getting on The Last Dance. And he deserves much of that narrative. But B.J. is right. Krause was dealt a pocket ace with Michael Jordan, but he essentially built two dynasties around him. And part 2 we'll focus more on Phil Jackson, as well as Will and BJ's departures from the Bulls. You may not recall that Will was traded to the Spurs straight up for Dennis Rodman and won a title under Greg Popovich. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.